From the heart of the Great Prairies in the center of America, this is The Files, where we take a look at the supernatural side of this interesting world. I'm Spirit of Kenny. Let's get started. Happy Halloween. Now, last week, UFO Twitter waited like trained dogs for the U.S. government to release their yearly UAP report. Unless this report has a video of an alien, or they march an alien out on stage and they're able to do a Q&A session with them, it doesn't matter. Because this phenomenon is not just isolated to the United States of America. It was going on way before the States was even a country. So the phenomenon is bigger than just one country. It's a worldwide phenomenon that has been going on back to the beginning of history. Last week, we talked about the encounter Ezekiel had. That was in the Bible of his encounter with aliens from a disc-shaped craft. So the phenomenon is bigger than the States. One report does not solve the mystery of the phenomenon unless there's aliens there and they answer the questions. My problem right now is with the U.S. Navy. With all their advanced radar technology, they can't tell the difference between air garbage and UAPs they said were not made of human technology. I think they need to do some retraining. Anyway, let's get into the stories. And we're going to keep focused on UFOs right now. This is from CTV. UFOs. Canadian Air Force responds to threats with CF-18 fighter jets. And this is right from the story. The Canadian military routinely states that it does not typically investigate sightings of unknown or unexplained phenomenon outside the context of investigating credible threats, potential threats, or potential distress in the case of search and rescues. So it is unusual for the Canadian military to make any sort of statement about UFOs. They Usually when they do, they say that it's a non-threat, which always kind of bugged me because how do you know if it's a non-threat, unless you know exactly what you're dealing with or you have a history of dealing with these craft before. But in this article, the CTV has a number of uh, incidents involving the UFOs and the Canadian military. Uh, we're just going to pick one. Evasive action. This one's called December 22, 2016. Now these events are all fairly recent. An American Airlines flight from London to New York was more than 300 kilometers south of Goose Bay, Labrador, on the night of December 22, 2016, when it reported a possible aircraft off its left side and below, according to a publicly available Transport Canada report. And again, Canada is really transparent when it comes to these sort of reports. I, they have them all over the website. Uh, aircraft Control and North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, did not observe any radar data to confirm the report uh, continued referring to the Joint Canadian-U.S. Continental Defense Group. Two other aircraft reported a possible target. Back to the story. Once classified as secret, digital logbook entries from the Royal Canadian Air Force provide more details. They describe the American Airlines flight taking evasive actions when an unknown aircraft appeared to its left side, which, inclusive radar data, Canadian CF-18 fighters were scrambled to investigate what was dubbed TOI number 2, or track of interest number two. Air Force personnel, meanwhile, instructed the Air Americans flight to turn 90 degrees right to separate data trail from the other aircraft. Since two or more aerial objects can appear as a single radar blip if too close together, the pilot complied and only a signal radar hit was detected behind him. When the American airline plane returned to its original flight plan, the crew reported seeing an aircraft with a rotating white light on the left side and behind him. They weren't the only ones, the story continues. Not far away, near the Gulf of St. Lawrence, a Lufthansa flight soon saw something slightly below them and to the left, while a Swiss flight saw white lights and rotating beacons. Boston Aircraft Controller informed the all aircraft in the area to look 
for the unusual activity. Pilots and Canadian fighter jets, however, were unable to locate the track of interest and return to their home base in Begets, Quebec, after about an hour and a half in the air. This story kind of has it all. It has multiple confirmations from different, not even just different people on the airplane, but different airplanes, different pilots saying they see these lights in this area. They also have this confirmation that whatever is making this light can't be picked up by radars. And when the CF-18 jets come out, they can't see anything. We got a lot of positive confirmations in the commercial sector, but the military sector seems to have a blind eye to whatever this phenomenon is. This isn't the only story they talked about. There's some really cool stories in there. Uh, check it out. CTV actually doing a really good job. I saw a couple articles about this documentary, uh, Moment of Contact. I've heard the interview with the uh, creator of it on Mysterious Universe. He did a really good job. Really uh, convinced me to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. But apparently, in this documentary, they claim that there's a video that exists of an alien from 1996. Now let's get into this little story from the Toronto Sun. A military insider said he saw a soldier with a camera filming a captured alien as the creature's body was being transported from Humanitarius Hospital in Varagina to the ESA Army Base. That's where the rumors of this video footage comes from. The film ends with a statement from the filmmakers saying they continue to pursue video and photo evidence, evidence they say has already been seen by the U.S. officials. I mean, there's lots of ifs and buts here, but third or fourth hand knowledge of, of UFO sightings or Bigfoot sightings or any sort of phenomenon sightings usually is a red flag. We tend to stay away from it. The focus of the documentary is this supposed UFO crash that happened January 20th, 1996. This is from the Toronto Sun story. Three young women claim to have seen an alien being on January 20th, 1996, a creature about five feet tall with a large head, brown skin, and large red eyes while walking unsteadily in a rainstorm. A second, similar-looking creature was found lying by a road two days later, and another such being was spotted at the local zoo. Brazilian military authorities explained away each of these incidents. News Corp in Australia reported that interest in these alleged UFO crashes, extraterrestrial encounters, and subsequent military cover-ups, which create a media frenzy at the time, has intensified once again with the news that the video of an alien exists. I mean, this is one of those great stories that you hear. You wish it's true, but until there's actual proof, it's nothing. It's a, it's a great story. Moving on. The BBC has this story, The Missing Plan for Alien First Contact. It's a nice read, um, but if aliens were to contact humans, it's going to be the aliens that are taking the lead. Humans are going to take a backseat to that event. Aliens, if they're from another planet or another dimension, clearly have way more advanced technology than we could ever dream of. And chances are, if they're contacting us, they have a reason to contact us. We may never know what it is. And also, they would have been observing us for a long time, especially if they're coming from outer space. They would have just been looking at our planet and seeing us develop and develop and develop. And they would probably have a pretty good understanding of who we are and who they're making contact with. Again, this is all speculation, but it is uh, fun speculation, right? Last week was Halloween, so there was a bunch of spooky stories in the news. There's a lot of interviews with paranormal investigators, lots of ghost tours. But one story stood out to more more than others, and this one's from the CBC. I'll look back at the mysterious haunting of an Antigonish County farm a hundred years later. Sudden fires, paranormal phenomenon, and a teenage girl branded a poltergeist. Oh, hold up, right there. You have to be dead to be a poltergeist. There's no living poltergeist. Poltergeists are ghosts. Well, it's a, it's it's theorized that poltergeists are ghosts. A husband and wife with their adopted daughter lived on the small community 
farm about 25 kilometers south of Antigonish. On a stormy night in the winter of 1922, reports say small blue fires started appearing in the home with no cause. By the end of the night, the family put out 30 fires on the property. Walter Prince, a psychic investigator from Boston, even traveled to the farm to investigate. His conclusion was the adopted daughter was a poltergeist, and all the activities that had happened at the farm were spirits and that they had been channeled through her to create the fires and everything else that had gone on. From then on, the popular theory had become the adopted daughter, who was only 14 or 15 at that time, was possessed and causing the fires. I have this feeling that just fires isn't enough to call someone a poltergeist, maybe a fire starter of some sort. So I did a little further digging on this story and I went to the town's website and found this. In January of 1922, a fire started in a part of the house. Oddly, it was not near the fireplace or the wood stove. Once extinguished, another erupted in an empty room at the other end of the home. The family was totally puzzled. Other fires materialized mysteriously. What towels and patches of wallpaper would burst into flames? It did not take long for the family to realize that there was something unnatural occurring. With the help of their neighbors, they began to guard the house, hoping to catch any intruding arsonist. Fires continued to appear out of nowhere, but no arsonist was ever caught. In a total, there were 30 unexplained fires. So the CBC story says there was 30 fires in a single night. And this other story says there was just 30 fires. So it's kind of confusing, but the idea is there are these spontaneous fires that were erupting all across the property and just their property. Fires were not the only unsolved occurrence at the farm of the McDonald's. The McDonald's would enter their barn and find ashes in their stored milk and all the animals moved to different locations within the barn. Soon the family was persuaded to leave the home while the local authorities investigated. When word of the mysteries got out, reporters arrived to get the scoop. Even Sir Arthur Colin Doyle was invited to investigate the McDonald's daughter, Mary Ellen, came to be known as Mary Ellen Spook. She moved to central Canada and no further instances occurred. Spontaneous fires used to be a big deal. Huge deal. I mean, spontaneous human combustions was a huge story in the paranormal world. Fringe science. Not a lot of them have happened lately for whatever reasons. But I think it's interesting to note that the family's house burnt down sometime after Mary Ellen left. But also... That wherever she moved to after that, there was no fire incidents. It was, was this the perfect place at the perfect time? Or something else going on? I don't know. We don't know. But it's a nice little story. A nice little story about like a trickster element, fouling milk, moving animals around, but also this kind of dangerous activity of fire starting. Very tricksterish with a evil twist at the end. So we have a little history rabbit hole to go down right now. This is from Live Science. In the late 18th century, a man was buried in Griswold, Connecticut, with his femur bones arranged in a crisscross manner, a placement indicating that locals thought he was a vampire. However, very little else is known about him. More than 200 years later, DNA evidence is revealing what he may have looked like. And yes, and yes, he was genetically a human. Now, based on the position of the leg bones and the skull in the grave, researchers suspect that at some point, the body was disinterred and reburied, a practice often associated with the belief that someone was a vampire. Historically, some people once thought that those died with tuberculosis were actually vampires. Archaeologists originally unearthed the supposed vampire's remains in 1990. 
In 2019, forensic scientists extracted his DNA and ran it through an online genealogical database, determined that JB55 was actually a man named John Barber. How cool is this? A famous farmer who likely died of tuberculosis. So it all kind of makes sense. Isn't that crazy that you can take someone's DNA, someone who died in the 18th century, who people thought was a vampire, and put his DNA into a database, and you can actually create a likeness to see what it looks like, but also you can find out who they were, what they worked at, and how they died. This is his, this is science to the max. Just incredible research, incredible databases, and outstanding work. This next story is also from Live Science. Two Viking stories buried upright might have connected the dead to Odin and Valhalla. Whoever installed the iron stores perpendicular to the surface about 1,200 years ago clearly did so on purpose, as it would have taken a lot of effort, possibly involving rocks or hammers, to wedge the weapons roughly 16 inches into the ground. The placement of the stores reflects an action with a lot of symbolism, the lead archaeologist said. When you find stores in graves, which you don't very often do, they often lie beside the buried individual as a faithful companion on a voyage to the next world. It's a mystery why the sores were placed standing up, but one possible explanation is that it was a way of consecrating the deceased to Odin. Ground-struck swords, and in some cases spears and arrowheads, may have been thought to have facilitated the transition to Valhalla, according to the archaeologist. However, some researchers suggest that sharp objects struck into the graves were a way of preventing the dead from rising. The team said, we don't think this applies to these graves, as the swords were such precious objects. Instead, knives and arrowheads could have been used, which would have been significantly cheaper. Do do do. It's just interesting to see how we treat our dead. The cultural difference is now how we treat our dead. We don't put anything in their bodies to stop them from doing anything. So the dead could be out all night, causing all sorts of terror. This will make three in a row for live science. Medieval fighter may have died with an axe stuck in his face. Reconstruction shows. Wild. This is just wild. An axe to the face was the likely final blow that killed a medieval combatant during the Battle of Gotland, a blood-soaked attack that unfolded in 1361 between Swedish farmers and the Danish army. Now, more than 660 years later, researchers have released a facial reconstruction showing what this man may have looked like. Researchers described the gruesome details about the unnamed fighter and his ghastly injury that killed him in a new study published online on October 30th using a method called photogrammary. A separate team of archaeologists scanned the human remains that were buried near the makeshift battlefield and published their findings. One of the skulls in particular caught the attention of the lead study author, a Brazilian graphics expert, 3D artist, and designer. In the skull, a deep crack stretched diagonal from the bottom left portion of the lower jaw to a whole cavity where the nose was. Several teeth seemed to be knocked out by the force of the blow, as in such a severe battle wound would only be inflicted one way, with a powerful axe chop to the face. It is just amazing how researchers are able to piece together the past now. We're reconstructing people's faces, people's lifestyles, what they did for a living, the ways they died, how people reacted to them. It's just a wild world that we live in. We're just putting it together one piece at a time. Just amazing. Going to move into something a bit more contemporary now. A historic fish lizard fossil bombed by Nazis has seared copies made. This is from Science Alert. The first complete Ichisaurus skeleton believed to have been found, Mary Anning, was thought to have been lost forever when German bombs rained down on London 
during World War II. But two plaster casts with the distinctive dolphin-like reptile have now been unearthed, even though there was no record of them ever being made. Researchers from the University of Manchester and New York State University described the findings as historically important. One cast, found at the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale University in the United States, is likely to be a cast of a cast that was donated to the institution in 1930. The other, at the Natural History Museum in Berlin, says, oh, uh, The other, at the Natural History Museum in Berlin, only says that it's a plaster cast of an itchy source skeleton from an unknown location. It's so wild to think nowadays because everything has barcodes and you can't lose anything that they're finding these incredible finds, these plaster casts of these dinosaurs that were long thought to have been destroyed. These things that are in these museums are, are just incredible. I'm going to head back to live science on this one. Missing woman's body discovered in the stomach of a 22-foot python in Indonesia. This is wild. This one's this. A 54-year-old woman was killed and eaten by a massive python. A monster by any other name. The woman, a 54-year-old grandmother, went missing on October 23rd. Her family reported her missing when she did not return home that evening. A search party, which included her husband, was unable to locate her that night, though they found her sandals and several articles of her clothing on the ground. The next day, locals spotted a gigantic python lurking near the spot where her discarded clothing had been found. Witnesses said that the snake had a suspiciously large stomach bulge. A group of villagers chased the python down and killed it. After they split open the snake's belly, they discovered a body inside which was identified as the missing woman's. It is just incredible that these things exist and they live right next to us. And we're okay with that. We're fine. Wild. There's been a lot of dead body talk on this show. Mostly because we've been finding incredible things with dead bodies. But listen to this. This is out of Portugal. Random corpses in Portugal are becoming mummies. And it's becoming a real problem. This is from Science Alert. A spat of human bodies mysteriously not decomposing after burial is causing a crisis in Portugal, where bodies have been observed naturally mummifying after being buried. Under local laws implemented to save space, bodies need to be routinely exhumed so that the skeleton remains can be laid to rest in smaller containers. But many just don't decompose, causing trauma for families whose loved ones are repeatedly unearthed only to be put back to continue, to continue decaying. The fundamental problem is that no one really knows what's happening to the bodies buried in coffins. Scientists in Portugal are now working to uncover the cause of the strange mummifications. So they did a survey in the second largest city in Portugal and found that 55 to 64% of bodies between 2006 and 2015 were not fully decomposing. Well, at least the big problem in Portugal isn't snakes. This is almost an out-of-place story, but slightly different. This is from The Guardian. Climate crisis brings growing numbers of unusual jellyfish to the UK. In its first marine sighting report, which builds which builds upon 20 years of citizen science, the society has founded an increase in abundance of jellyfish types, including those normally found in warmer climates. Thousands of volunteers take part in the MCS report, telling the conservation group which species of jellyfish and turtles they have seen. Between October 1st, 2021 and September 30th, 2022, 
there were a total of 1,315 jellyfish sightings reported at the MCS. Eight jellyfish species are normally seen around the UK and Ireland, but this year, 11 were spotted, with more uncommon visitors now visiting these waters. They continue to say that unlike other marine creatures, jellyfish are very suited to live in difficult environments. Jellyfish are highly resilient and adaptive to changes in the environmental conditions. This sometimes results in large jellyfish blooms of hundreds or even thousands of individuals. These can disrupt marine ecosystems and be extremely damaging to human activity. But marine turtles sometimes benefit from the boom in jellyfish numbers. The reptiles visit UK waters in the summer months to feed on them. Last year, MCS volunteers reported 11 turtles, six of which were live leatherback turtles spotted on the coast of Scotland. Well, if anyone needs more help, it is marine turtles, so let the jellies boom. All right, we'll leave you with this last story from Gizmodo. After three months of space, China's mysterious space plane ejects unknown material. Last week, the United States Space Force 18th Space Defense Squadron tracked an unknown object in a similar orbit to the space plane. Space News first reported that the object appeared to be very close to the space plane, so close, in fact, that the Space Force had to make sure it was a separate object before it was entered into the database. The object may have been ejected earlier from the space plane, perhaps between October 24th and October, and October 30th. But it got added to the database on October 31st. Well, here's a real Chinese UAP. We're going to stick with the Canadian theme for this show. Uh, this week's encounter will be the Shag Harbor UFO incident. And some people say this is the most well-documented UFO crash or UFO incident in the history of Canada. It might be the most well-documented UFO incident in the history of the world. The Shag Harbor UFO incident is not only a government, a Canadian government-recognized event, but the Canadian government has celebrated this by making a $20 coin with a UV light-up coin that shows lights of the UFO. Just amazing. It's a cool-looking coin. When 2019, the Canadian, the Royal Canadian Mint, made this coin. So not only is it the most well-documented UFO incident in Canada, but it's also celebrated. So let's get into it. The UFO incident happened on October 4th, 1967. So this is right during the end of the Cold War. Bay of Pigs was what? three, four years ago in 1963. So there's still a lot of high tensions. There's still a lot of uh, unknowns what Russia is doing, the capabilities of Russia, heightened tensions in North America and Britain and stuff like this. So there was lots of radars open all the time, making sure that there's no sneaky Russian activity coming from the, over the North Pole, which is always a threat. But we're going to rip this right from the Wikipedia article. On the night of October 4th, 1967, at around 1120 Atlantic Daylight Time, it was reported that something had crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor. At least 11 people saw the low-flying lit object head towards the harbor. Multiple witnesses reported hearing a whistling sound like a bomb, then a whoosh, and finally a loud bang. The object was never officially identified and was therefore referred to as an unidentified flying object in the Government of Canada documents. The initial report was made by local resident Lori Wickens and four of his friends. Driving through Shag Harbor on Highway Number 3, they spotted a large object descend into the waters off the harbor. Attaining to a better vantage point, Wickens and his friends saw an object floating 250 to 30 meters offshore in the waters of Shag Harbor. 
Wiccans contacted the RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage and reported he had seen a large airplane or smaller airliner crash into the waters off Shag Harbor. And now we're going to move from the Wikipedia story to the National Post story, talking about the coins that were minted in 2019. Soon afterwards, Wiccans was among a dozen or so people gathered at the water's edge watching in amazement as a glowing orange sphere about the size of the city bus bobbed on the waves about 300 meters offshore. Three of those at the wharves were Mounties. One of them called the Rescue Coordinator Center in Halifax. A Coast Guard cutter was immediately dispatched to conduct a search. Before the ship arrived, volunteer searchers aboard two fishing boats soon spotted a long trail of bubbling yellow foam on the calm waters, but no wreckage. A squadron of Royal Canadian Navy divers later failed to turn up any clues after a three-day scan of the harbour floors, according to official military records. To this day, Wickens has no idea what he saw. All I know is that it was something and that was something came down. He says, adding that he believes the divers pulled something from the waters. If it, if it ended right there, we would already have multiple witnesses, credible witnesses, RCMP, documentation, physical evidence, but there's more. There was witnesses to this object prior to the crash in Shag Harbor. Air Canada Flight 305, en route to Toronto while flying over Sherbrooke and St. John, Quebec, at around 360... F- at around 3,658 meters from the Halifax International Airport, the Air Canada First Officer pointed out to the captain on flight 305 that there was something strange at the left side of the aircraft at 7.15 p.m. In his report, the captain reported an object tracking along on a parallel course a few miles away. He described it as a brilliantly lit rectangle object with a string of small lights trailing the object. At 7.19, the pilots noticed a sizable silent explosion near the large object. Two minutes later, a second explosion occurred, which faded to a blue cloud around the object. Get this one. While standing on the wheelhouse of his vessel, Captain Leo Howard Mersey was looking at four blips on his DECA radar that were stationary. When he looked up at around 20 kilometers from the vessel, he could see the four bright objects situated in a roughly rectangular formation. The entire crew of the nearly 20 fishermen stood on the deck and watched the object in the northeast sky. The captain radioed the rescue coordinator center and in the harbor master in Halifax asking for explanation and filed a report with the Lundberg RCMP outlining his sightings when they arrived in port. But that's not all. The Chronicle Herald and a local radio station reported a glowing object that had been seen by many people who called their newsroom. They reported seeing a strange glowing object flying around Halifax at around 10 p.m. And we're going to move to a CTV Atlantic article to sort of finish up this story. The incident, referred to as a unidentified flying object by the federal government, sparked a slew of reports, articles, and conspiracy theories over the years. So much interest remains in this case that the Royal Canadian Mint has released a coin commemorating the Shag Harbor UFO incident, quickly selling out online. The credibility of the witnesses is just amazing for this, the Royal Canadian Mint project manager said. We have witnesses from the military... We have pilots who were witnesses to the event and local RCMP officers and residents like Laurie and his friends. So it was a great story to tell. You can see why this is the best documented UFO incident in Canadian history. We got Canadian military, Coast Guard, RCMP, airline pilots, a boat crew, 
a fishing boat crew, and townspeople, multiple witnesses, multiple credible witnesses. Here on Encounters, we like to strip away the labels and dissect the event as much as possible. So what happened here? A brilliant lit object or glowing rectangle with smaller lights trailing it or on it, at least four of these lights. There are witnesses of two explosions that occurred while the object was in the air. And it was flying over the witnesses at Shake Harbor. It made a sound like a bomb or a whoosh or a bang. When it hit the water, it turned orange and then sank into the harbor and left behind a yellow foam. No official evidence of where the rectangle craft went after that, but it's just a wild story. So we have a, we have a, so we have a large rectangle craft that suffered a couple explosions and crashed in a lake with no evidence, but a little bit of yellow foam on a calm lake. No occupants, no evidence that there was any people on it or anything on it. Could it be a lighter than air aircraft? Could it be a UFO? Or could it be something else completely? Only time will tell in this matter. Thanks for listening to Interesting World, The Files. As always, go to interestingworld.ca for your link to the YouTube channel. We just reached over 100 subs, so it's very exciting. We got a handle now. As always, stay sharp. Thanks for listening. More to come.